Okay, now that all the seats are filled, I think it's a good time to start. Um, welcome everybody to the LSE and to the Forum for European Philosophy. Tonight's event is part of the Philosophy and LSE lecture series that the Forum puts on together with the Department of Philosophy, the Center for the Study of the Natural and Social Sciences, <laughs> and various academics um, work in philosophy at the LSE. So the idea is that um, people doing philosophical work at the LSE, getting an opportunity to present that work, um, to you know, show people from outside the LSE what we're doing here, and also to, of course, give you an opportunity to engage with the work that is being done um, at the LSE in philosophy. And tonight's speaker is Professor Christian List, who is a professor in political science and philosophy at the LSE. He has been at the LSE since 2005. And before that was in Oxford, where he also did his PhD and his undergraduate studies, and also spent some time at the um, Australian National University. And uh, his research interests are quite broad. He works on a variety of really fascinating topics, including causal explanations, group agency, decision theory, freedom, welfare, and equality, and deliberative democracy. And of course, tonight's topic, um, free will in a deterministic world. And... Um, Given that you're all here, I'm sure you all have some, some thoughts and some uh, ideas about this topic. So the broad, the broad motivation for putting on this talk is that, of course, the sciences, and in particular the view that we live in a deterministic world, um, seems to threaten the notion that we have free will, that we are able to make free decisions. And given that this notion is very central, very core to the way we think about ourselves, this um, would be a very fundamental threat indeed. Um, and so I think we're all looking forward to Christian's talk, who will um, try to convince us tonight that we can have free will, perhaps even in a deterministic world. So I'm looking forward to the talk, and I think the talk will be about 50 minutes, right? So we should have at least half an hour for discussion afterwards. Thank you. Great. Well, thanks, uh, Christina, for the... So thanks for, for the invitation. It's a great opportunity to speak in this uh, series. I just got attacked by a bottle of uh, sparkling water, so uh, this is one of these uh, physical processes in the world. So free will in a deterministic world. Okay, um, once in a while, scientific discoveries seem to challenge um, the way we uh, see ourselves as... see the screen? No, it's Okay, once in a while, um, scientific discoveries seem to challenge our understanding of the human condition in the world, and a familiar example of um, how this can happen is given by the discovery of evolutionary theory in the 19th century, which at the time challenged many people's views about the origins of the human species. So Darwin, Darwin argued that humans evolved from other animals and therefore stand in much greater biological continuity with the rest of the living world um, than people previously thought. And of course, this went very much against conventional wisdom at the time and um, prompted uh, lots of reactions and um, debates. Now, some people responded um, to this scientific development simply by rejecting or disbelieving um, the relevant scientific claims of evolutionary theory, rejecting, in this case, um, 
the claim that uh, humans have um, evolved in a long process um, from other um, previous species. And we still sometimes come across this response occasionally um, today, that there are quite a few people out there still who deny the findings of evolutionary theory, partly prompted, I guess, by some sense of unease that, that somehow they think evolutionary theory challenges their understanding of the human condition. Now, other people tend to respond to this not so much by denying or rejecting the scientific discoveries, but rather by revisiting our self-conception as humans in the world, by asking how we can render our understanding of the human condition somehow consistent with the relevant scientific findings. And um, I think it's fair to say that um, nowadays... Um, Secular philosophers on the one hand, and uh, also many churches, including the Roman Catholic Church, hold that evolutionary theory is actually consistent with a broader moral understanding of the human condition. They've simply found a way of reconciling evolutionary theory and the apparent challenges that it seemed to pose at the time with a broader sense of our place in the world as humans. So here we have an instance of um, a scientific challenge of some aspect of our understanding of the human condition, which eventually, after due reflection, um, uh, was reconciled with a broader human worldview, at least in the eyes of many people. Now, in the lecture today, I want to look at a different challenge um, that science uh, seems to raise for our self-conception as humans, a challenge that is distinct from the one that uh, evolutionary theory posed in the 19th century. And this is the challenge that our physical understanding of the world may seem to pose to the idea of free will. Quite a different topic. Um, and uh, along the way, I'll also try to give you a little bit of an introduction to some of the relevant philosophical debates about free will, though I must also warn you that this is, of course, a huge topic on which there is a gigantic philosophical literature and there is no way I can even begin to do justice to this um, subtle and detailed philosophical debate within the course of one hour. Um, and uh, I've also tried to um, you know, pick and choose some themes that are particularly interesting perhaps for a general discussion, so I hope the professional philosophers among you will forgive me for not engaging with, with all the details of all the technical arguments. So here's the structure of um, the talk. First of all, um, I'll say a little bit about what is free will. Then I'll ask the question of why free will matters. Um, this should be relatively easy to answer, I guess, but nonetheless, we should go through it. And then I'll look at some physical challenges for free will. And I'll focus specifically on two challenges. First of all, the challenge from determinism, and secondly, the challenge from reductionism. And I'll say more about what each of these challenges is. And then finally, I'll make some concluding remarks. So let me begin with the question of what is free will? Now, very roughly speaking, this is just the first approximation, free will is the ability freely to choose or control our own actions. This is a bit of a hand-waving definition, and we'll have to make this a bit more precise as we go along. So, just to give you a few examples, it was presumably your free choice to come to this lecture. You decided to come to this lecture, and um, you made this um, happen. Uh, you could presumably have chosen otherwise. Similarly, if you have time later tonight, it'll be your free choice. It'll be up to you whether to switch on the radio or television and listen to the news uh, or not. Um, 
again, this is one of those things that will presumably be under your control. You make up your mind, do you want to listen to the news or not, and, and then you'll make it happen. Similarly, when I went to get myself a, a drink this afternoon, I was able freely to choose between coffee and tea and some other um, options. Um, you know, I was at the counter, and uh, then I could either opt for coffee, I could opt for tea. I ended up opting for a macchiato, I think, but uh, it was pretty clear to me that I could have chosen otherwise. There was, there was really nothing that would have prevented me from choosing a tea or a cappuccino or whatever instead, or, or indeed not having a coffee at all. Okay, these are all familiar ideas of free will, just in ordinary day-to-day contexts. Now, it's important to distinguish free will in this metaphysical sense, free will somehow as a feature of um, what being an agent is all about, from some other notions of freedom, in particular social, political, and economic notions of freedom. So those other social, political, and economic notions of freedom focus on, for instance, what the social conditions for our actions are, whether we are at risk of interference or coercion by others, um, and whether we have access to the social means and resources for pursuing our plans and projects, um, and um, so on. So it's clear um, that there are all sorts of um, social, political, and economic constraints that we face all the time that prevent us from pursuing our projects and plans the way we would ideally um, like. Um, Just give a very strong example, the Berlin Wall uh, until 1989 prevented a lot of people um, from um, leaving uh, East Berlin and and going to to West Berlin. This was a clear um, barrier to uh, individual freedom of people on one side of the uh, wall. Um, So we are dealing with uh, significant forms of political interference and coercion here, but um, this is an issue for um, our political and social analysis of the world. It's not so much a metaphysical issue. From a metaphysical perspective, um, we would not say that people who were prevented from crossing that, uh, that border lacked free will in this metaphysical sense we're talking about. Um, I mean, f- people behind uh, the Iron Curtain uh, also were, of course, able to um, make the ordinary agential choices in much the same way in which, uh, in which we do, you know, when it comes, for instance, to picking between different courses of action for, for the day or different, different drinks to choose from uh, and, and, and so on. So I really want to carefully distinguish between political and metaphysical notions of freedom and set aside those social, political, and economic ones and focus on the metaphysical, agential ones instead. This is, of course, not to deny that political freedom is an important topic. topic. It's extremely important, but it's just a a different topic. Okay, so to make the question for tonight a little bit more precise, here's what I want to ask. I want to ask whether at least in those domains in which we are not subject to obvious external constraints, we can freely control our own actions. And to just uh, get your intuitions going on this, uh, I want to try a little uh, experiment with with all of you. So in about half a minute, not not yet, so don't do anything yet, I will ask you to raise one of your arms, but not yet, okay? Now, before you do this, right at this moment, 
decide which arm you would like to raise. Obviously, you have two, two choices. You, know, you can either, <laughs> I imagine, either left or right, okay? So make up your mind, okay? Everyone has made up their mind, left or right, you're, you're firm. Okay, now go ahead and raise the arm that you've decided to, to, to raise. Okay, I'm not going to, not going to count. Now, who felt that this action was under your uh, control? Okay, good, good. And uh, also, who felt that in principle you could have chosen otherwise? Okay, good. So, I really get the sense that there is a very broad, not just majority, but overwhelming supermajority in this room who think that um, this decision was totally within your control. It was your decision to raise the particular arm that you chose to raise. You absolutely could have chosen otherwise as well. There, 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 was, there was no you know, external barrier uh, that would have uh, in any way you know, prevented you from going one way rather than the other. And I think this little experiment should also make it clear why I'm really focusing uh, uh, on this um, notion of free will in this metaphysical sense as a feature of agents and set aside um, the uh, complicated political issues because um, the, the sense in which you all felt um, that you had free will in this choice to raise your arm um, is of course completely uh, un unaffected by the broader issue about social, political, and economic background conditions. I mean, they may be important for other aspects of your life, extremely important, but you know, not for this specific issue. Okay. Now, generally, for an action to count as free, um, three conditions must be met. The first condition is that the agent could have acted otherwise. And I think you all, or most of you at least, affirmed that I mean, you felt free in the sense that you felt you could have acted otherwise. A second condition is that the action was indeed an intentional action as opposed to a mere reflex. I guess if um, someone knocks my knee in a particular place, then I'll show this, I'll exhibit this, this typical bodily reflex. I guess a medical doctor might try this. Um, now, this is, of course, not an intentional action, but it's a mere form of bodily movement or behavior, which is not really under the control of my intentional mental state. And for this reason, this is not really an action that would be ordinarily subsumed under the umbrella of free will. And then thirdly, another condition for an action to count as free is that the action was, in the relevant sense, caused by the agent, not by some other... Um, physical process that somehow had nothing to do with, with the agent. Um, so I'm just somehow saying that it was um, a sequence of um, neural uh, firing patterns in your brain, um, you know, completely distinct from your intentions and mental states that caused the action, somehow to many of us doesn't feel good enough for, for free will. It, it has to be it has to be me who caused the action, not just um, some sub-personal, subconscious physical process, or so many of us feel. And now different theories of free will 
tend to spell out these three components in different ways and also emphasize some of these components while de-emphasizing others. So if you look at the philosophical debate on free will, you'll certainly find that some philosophers will put the most emphasis, for instance, on this first component, the ability to act otherwise. Other philosophers put more emphasis on um, the idea of um, intentionality of the action, yet other philosophers put more emphasis on the idea of agential causation. And you can get different theories of free will depending on how exactly you put together a package of conditions from these three uh, ingredients. Um, but I think it's fair to say that a good theory of free will must somehow explain how all of these three things um, are possible. Okay, so that's a brief introduction to what free will is. Of course, we could write whole books on this. In fact, whole books have been written on this, so I'll, I'll just have to remain brief. So next, let's ask, why does free will matter? Is this just one of those esoteric, metaphysical notions that philosophers uh, think about, but which has little uh, real-world significance? And let me just give you a few considerations to uh, hopefully convince you otherwise. I mean, maybe you're already convinced otherwise. So, very briefly... First of all, free will is absolutely central to our self-conception as agents who are capable of rational deliberation and decision-making. I imagine that all the time when you conduct your lives, your daily affairs, you are confronted with a question of, you know, what should I do? You have a number of different possible things you could do, and you ask yourself, what should I, what should I do? What is, the, what is the right course of action for me to take? And then... Perhaps you weigh the reasons for different causes, uh, for, for different causes of action um, and um, you balance them and then you come to the conclusion, I do this one thing rather than the other thing. People who are students at the LSE, for instance, may have had a chance to also go to another university and they had to balance the pros and cons of these different um, options and at some point you had to make a um, decision comparing these options. And the whole way in which we deliberate about such choices, um, weigh the pros and cons, um, is totally based on the fundamental premise that we have free will, that we could indeed um, pursue each of these different actions if we so wished. Um, if we somehow gave up that idea of free will, the whole notion of rational deliberation and decision-making wouldn't really make uh, much, much sense any longer. You know, why then even bother to go through that exercise if we are not capable of making <coughs> intentional decisions controlling our actions. Okay, so that much I think um, should be almost you know, common sense. Secondly, and relatedly, but nonetheless uh, uh, over and above the first point, is the um, point that free will is also central to our attribution of responsibility to each other, which lies at the heart of morality and the law. Um, we um, take ourselves to be responsible for our actions, and we also hold others responsible for um, their actions. And we um, not only have notions of moral responsibility, moral appraisal, um, notions uh, such as um, uh, moral guilt, uh, notions such as punishment, and so on, but... Uh, importantly, these notions are also central to um, the approach to the law and, and, and the legal system. Uh, and uh, we do have um, a complex system of 
civil, civil and criminal law, uh, in which certain uh, acts are deemed permissible, other acts are prohibited, and yeah. people are held liable or responsible for um, what, what they do. And um, again, a standard um, assumption is that you can be held responsible or liable only for something if it was indeed within your control. If you had no control over, over the action in question, then you cannot be held uh, responsible for it. And indeed, the law recognizes that someone um, um, who didn't act freely and with the relevant control um, doesn't really qualify for, for something like uh, guilt in a, in a criminal trial. Let's suppose you inadvertently injure someone while sleepwalking or you were in some you know, free psychological condition that uh, put you out of control of your actions and maybe blamelessly put you out of control of, of your actions, then um, you cannot be held criminally liable for the consequences of, of those actions. Um, I mean, that, that's not in any way a novel point about science. That is just a standard point about ordinary practices of uh, legal responsibility, attribution, punishment, blame, um, and, and so on. And um, let me maybe just take another brief show of hands to see um, who is uh, so far with me on this claim that free will is a necessary condition for responsibility ascriptions. Okay. Very good. So, uh, <laughs> so, um, so, so far, it, it seems that I haven't really said anything that 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 goes too uh, significantly against um, common sense. Okay. So now, with this background in place, um, let's look at uh, how modern physics, modern science, might seem to challenge free will. And th there's a lot more that could be said than I will be able to say, but. Um, well, we'll have to make a start somewhere. So it's claimed more and more often that modern science shows, allegedly, that free will is an illusion. Um, and if you look at the popular science media, Scientific American, New Scientist, uh, um, any, um, uh, any magazine that engages with those kinds of topics, um, then you'll find lots of articles presenting neuroscien neuroscientific findings that purportedly show that there is no such thing as free will in the conventional um, sense. And uh, there are lots of books now um, publishing uh, surprising neuroscientific findings that allegedly challenge the conventional uh, notion of, of free will, suggesting that you know, free will is one of those metaphysical you know, leftovers from the old days where our intuitions have not quite kept up with um, modern-day uh, scientific developments. I'll just give you one example of this. Um, here is um, a, a cover picture from an article in um, Nature uh, in 2011. Nature is uh, one of the top two general science journals along with with the other journal called uh, Science. Um, so this is a hugely influential publication, and they ran this um, feature article with a title, Taking Aim at Free Will, subtitle, Scientists Think They Can Prove Free Will is an Illusion, 
philosophers are urging them to think again. So I guess I'm one of those philosophers trying to urge uh, them, them to think again, but uh, I think um, uh, th these references to free will allegedly being an illusion based on physical findings, uh, that they are all over the place now. So let me give you a classic example of such a challenge um, uh, from uh, neuroscience. And this, this challenge already goes back uh, to the 1980s, and it's been refined and maybe also in some respects uh, superseded since then, but it's illustrative of the kinds of points that people make. Um, and this challenge comes from a landmark experiment that um, the neuroscientist Benjamin Libet uh, conducted in the uh, early 1980s, in which he asked um, subjects to make voluntary decisions to move their hand or finger. So you know, very simple decisions, you know, much like the decision that I asked you to make about raising, raising your arm. And then he also asked his subjects to indicate when exactly they had made uh, the decision. You can think of a number of different experimental setups that would do that trick. You know, maybe uh, you are asked to make a decision about you know, when to move your right hand, let's say, and with your left hand you are um, allowed to press another button which uh, is meant to indicate precisely the time at which you've made that decision. And then um, Libet measured the subject's brain activity using scalp electrodes, um, which were a technique at the time to look at um, the precise uh, electrical activity in some regions of the brain. Um, and he showed that the relevant brain activity that um, might be interpreted as preparing for the hand movement in question, that brain activity, preceded the time at which subjects themselves said they had made the decision. Um, and it preceded, I mean, these are all short timescales, but the claim was that it preceded it by uh, enough time to suggest that there was some kind of subconscious preparation for that decision to move the hand uh, going on prior to what the subjects self-reported as the official, conscious, intentional decision time. Now, Libet and others interpreted this as challenging the idea of free will. Namely, they interpret the experiment as suggesting that it was a subconscious brain process, a physical process in the brain, not the apparent conscious decision that was responsible for the movement. Because had it been the conscious decision, then somehow they might have expected... Um, the brain activity not to precede that, that self-reported conscious decision. And uh, as you can imagine, uh, these uh, experimental findings uh, have prompted much debate uh, by philosophers, neuroscientists, and, and others. And um, more recently, people have actually questioned um, some details of the interpretation of these experimental findings. Um, but um, for my purpose... I just want to flag the observation that the more we learn through neuroscience um, and related fields about the underlying physical mechanisms that are behind our decision-making and behind our cognition and behind psychological phenomena, the more many scholars are at least tempted to you know, no longer attribute certain decisions to someone's actual free will, 
but instead to attribute those decisions to some subconscious um, underlying physical process. Not something that is um, rooted in the agent, but rather something that is rooted in the physical laws of nature underpinning the whole thing. Okay. Um, it's, um, it's useful, I think, to distinguish between at least two broad kinds of physical challenges um, for um, free will. Now, abstracting from the Libet uh, example and um, just looking at the philosophical debate a little bit more generally, one is the challenge from determinism, about which I'll say more, and another one is the challenge from reductionism. Now, determinism is the thesis very roughly speaking, that at any given point in time, the present physical state of the world fully determines its future continuation. Um, Newton's um, classical theory of physics, for instance, modeled um, the physical world uh, as being deterministic in the sense that if the physical world uh, does indeed precisely obey uh, Newton's laws, then by specifying the initial state of the physical world at some particular point in time, everything thereafter will just unfold mechanically uh, in line with those physical laws, um, and uh, the world will then be on one fixed trajectory with you know, no possibility of branching in one direction or in a different direction. You know, much like a, a tram, which is just on one single uh, track, with, with no branching anywhere on that track, uh, when this is in motion, it'll just keep going steadily along that path. And similarly, determinism is the thesis that um, once the full physical state of the world is fixed at a particular point in time, um, this thereby also fixes the entire future sequence of um, events. Um, now, for the record, Newton's um, theory of physics has, of course, been superseded, and we now have more modern theories of physics. And um, they are, and I'll say more about this in a moment, they are divided over whether determinism is true or false. Anyway, the first challenge that I'm going to look at concerns the question of whether determinism is compatible with free will. The second challenge is the challenge from reductionism. Reductionism again, very roughly speaking, is the thesis that all events and processes in the world are somehow determined or subsumed by underlying physical events and processes. Or you could say this thesis um, states that all events and processes in the world are somehow a byproduct of underlying physical events and processes um, and can ultimately be explained in physical terms. So the reductionist claim would be, for instance, that... Um, various events to do with psychological phenomena are ultimately just a byproduct of various physical happenings in the world. So let's say various events to do with my psychology and decision making are just a byproduct of um, the underlying physical processes in my brain and body. And ultimately we should be able to explain psychological phenomena in those underlying physical terms. And so the second challenge uh, is that reductionism allegedly conflicts uh, with free will. So let me first talk a bit about the challenge from determinism and set aside the, the second challenge. So schematically, we can summarize the challenge from determinism in terms of a very simple argument, which 
begins with two premises and then derives a conclusion from these. The first premise of the argument is that an, action, an agent's action is free only if the agent can do otherwise. Um, I think you already agreed with me earlier on that this seems to be uh, a correct, necessary condition for free will. The second premise is that if the world is deterministic, then it is impossible for the agent to do otherwise. Now, why might this premise uh, make sense? Well, um, I just defined determinism for you as the thesis that once the physical state of the world is fully specified at a given point in time, then the laws of physics, the laws of nature, uh, make it the case that the entire future sequence of events is also thereby fully specified. Um, so therefore, of course, you, you can't have any branches in, in the road. Um, if determinism is right, then there was a previous time in the physical history of our universe, maybe the time of the Big Bang, at which the precise physical state of the world fully predetermined all the other things that would happen thereafter. And so earlier on, when I was faced with my choice between you know, macchiato and cappuccino and tea and whatever, uh, it was actually not up to me at that time to, to make that uh, decision, but the decision, which in fact went for macchiato in the end, uh, was already settled at the time of the Big Bang when those physical preconditions were specified. Okay, so if we affirm these two premises, then it seems we have to conclude that there can be no free will in a deterministic world. So that's the challenge from determinism. Now, how can we respond to this? How can we respond to this? Um, okay, I think it seems that if we accept the two premises, we must conclude that we have no free will unless we live in an indeterministic world. Let me just again take a show of hands. Who thinks that free will is indeed incompatible with determinism? So there cannot be free will uh, if the world is deterministic. Okay, well... What lots do you mean by the world? Do you include the description of the patient? Well, so this, this, well this, this is getting a little bit more technical, so we'll, 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 come, we'll come back uh, uh, to this. So um, I, I can sense a philosopher. <laughs> yes, uh, I, I've, I've, uh, I've done a, a little bit of hand-waving, so um, at, at some level we'd have to make all of this more precise to disambiguate various notions here. Okay, but I st still get the sense that there are a good number of people who do feel the force of this uh, argument. If the world is deterministic, then um, uh, this puts pressure on the idea of free will. Now, at first sight, we have an easy way out of this, namely just to accept um, the idea that the world is indeterministic. Um, so that determinism is, is just false. It just wasn't true that uh, at some earlier point in time, the Big Bang or whenever, the physical state of the world fully determined the entire future continuation. And there are indeed some prominent physical theories, most notably quantum mechanics, that seem to support um, indeterminism. Quantum mechanics is um, uh, a standard physical theory uh, of... Um, um, the, of physical phenomena at uh, a very small scale at the level of, of elementary particles and um, although it's certainly not um, the final word on the relevant physical phenomena, it's by and large for its domain of applicability uh, a relatively widely uh, accepted um, body of physical theory. And, and uh, on the standard interpretations at least quantum mechanics 
um, does suggest that the world um, is indeterministic in the sense that, for instance, um, if, you send an, uh, if you send a photon, a light particle, through a semi-transparent mirror, um, that there seems to be um, a 50% probability that the a photon goes one way, is reflected, and a 50% probability that the photon is transmitted, and it is somehow not predetermined beforehand uh, in which way the photon is going to go. So the world genuinely seems to exhibit branching on this, on this picture. But, first of all, it is an open question whether a future unified theory of physics um, that we might come up with will continue to support such indeterminism. And by the way, uh, when it comes to the precise interpretation of quantum mechanics, that there is some controversy also over whether these indeterministic interpretations are the, are the right ones. But even if we take those at face value, it's just not clear that um, as physics unfolds, we will uh, end up with a physical theory uh, according to which the world is indeterministic. And even if we just stick to these current theories like quantum mechanics, there is no consensus on whether these quantum indeterminacies are sufficient for free will. They're not necessarily amplified in biological systems like human beings and other organisms uh, to the level at which they could affect our actions. Um, there, there is no uh, consensus at all that these quantum indeterminacies, like these phenomena of you know, what a photon does upon impact with a semi-transparent mirror, and there are similar phenomena about electrons and so on, but whether they have any bearing whatsoever on uh, biological systems at the level of, of decision-making. And we would also have to dispel the worry that these quantum indeterminacies just introduce randomness into the world rather than free will, because surely free will is also not the same as, as randomness. It would be very little consolation for the... A philosopher trying to defend free will if um, it turned out that our choices are just these random fluke quantum events in, in our brain. Uh, and we, we want to say that they are somehow our intentional free choices over which we are the authors. Other people accept indeterminism and argue somehow that agents can make genuinely free, physically uncaused interventions in the world that somehow fall totally outside the laws of nature or the laws of physics. But I think many people will find that response unsatisfactory because it's too far out of sync with our scientific understanding of the world. So let's try another line of argument. A standard response to this um, argument uh, against free will from determinism is to try to redefine the notion of free will in such a way that it no longer requires the ability to act otherwise, thereby giving up uh, this first premise that the ability to act otherwise is a necessary condition for free will. And so perhaps what matters for free will is not so much the ability to act otherwise, but primarily that uh, I'm the author of my actions in some appropriate sense. And an example that is much cited in the literature is that of Martin Luther, the um, uh, German church um, uh, reformer, um, who was summoned uh, by the Roman Catholic Church to the Reichstag zu Worms uh, and was asked to um, renounce his criticism of the Roman Catholic Church. And he was told that if he doesn't renounce his criticism of the uh, church, he would then be excommunicated and face some drastic um, sanctions. But he refused to renounce his criticism, reportedly saying, here I stand, I can do no other. 
Now, was he denying that he had free will? Was he somehow saying that his choice uh, to um, reaffirm his criticism was not his free choice? No, I think to the contrary, he was taking full responsibility for his actions, somehow implying that these were a consequence of who he was, of his character. And indeed, I think we shouldn't interpret Luther as saying that it was literally impossible for him to do otherwise, but just that doing otherwise would have amounted to a betrayal of his values and beliefs. He could not do otherwise without sacrificing his integrity. And even if we consider this idea of full endorsement or authorship of one's actions um, a necessary condition for free will, we may still feel that a notion of free will that never includes the ability to do otherwise is just too watered down as a, as a notion of, of free will. And for this reason, um, I think um, it's more plausible to retain the idea that free will requires the ability to act otherwise. So here's my response to the, to the challenge. And I'll have to be very, very sketchy because I don't have uh, too much time. Um, so I'll um, really just... Uh, put on the table the ingredients of my um, response, and then those of you who would uh, be interested in more technical details can look at the accompanying paper. Basically, I think the way to respond to this challenge from determinism is to draw a distinction between two conceptually different forms of determinism, namely physical-level determinism on the one hand and agential or psychological-level determinism on the other hand. Let me explain. Physical level determinism is already what I've told you about, namely the thesis that at any given time, given the full state of the universe, only one future sequence of events is physically possible. Agential level determinism is a rather different claim, namely it's the thesis that at any time, given the psychological state of a particular agent, only one course of action is possible for that agent. And basically... I'm making a twofold claim here, namely that free will would be threatened only by agential level determinism, but not by physical level determinism. And I also want to suggest that even if the world is deterministic at a physical level, then there is still room for indeterminism at an agential level as some kind of emergent phenomenon. And let me explain this a bit further. So when we're interested in whether a particular action is possible for an agent, so let's say whether it is possible for me to make a choice uh, in favor of a macchiato instead of a cappuccino, then the appropriate frame of reference for answering this question is not the frame of reference given by fundamental physics, but rather the one given by our best theory of human agency or psychology. So the description of the world that matters when we think about what people can or cannot do is not a fundamental physical description, but rather a more macroscopic, if you like, psychological description of the world. It would somehow be a category mistake to use all the uh, technical tools of fundamental physics to ask or answer questions about what uh, an agent can or cannot do uh, when they are faced with a consumer choice in the supermarket or in the, in the cafeteria. And, and the reason why it would be a category mistake is that you know, even if we set aside more sophisticated theories of cognition, our ordinary common sense understanding of psychology dramatically outperforms physics or neuroscience when it comes to explaining and understanding human behavior across a broad range of domains and outside 
the uh, laboratory. And, and if in doubt about this, try to conduct your daily affairs, like shopping, traveling, small talk, you know, navigating your way around London, on the basis of understanding other people, or even yourselves, as neurophysical automata, rather than as intentional agents with beliefs, desires, intentions, goals, and, and, and so on. I, I think it's a complete, complete no-go. Uh, you know, what the philosopher Daniel Dennett calls the intentional stance forces itself uh, upon us when we... Um, uh, uh, conduct our affairs and, and try to interact at uh, the, the human agential level. And so I just want to get one technical idea across here. I want to introduce the technical term agential state to denote the state of an agent from an agential or psychological perspective rather than from a micro-physical um, perspective. So this is the best way, if you like, we can describe the state of an agent through the lens of psychology, not through the lens of, of particle physics. And such an agential description of the world um, may uh, be a byproduct of the underlying physics, but it is nonetheless a very different and more coarse-grained perspective than the underlying physical perspective. You know, rhetorically put, in order to um, describe the state of an agent, his or her psychology, intentions, goals, beliefs, all that matters for the agent's psychology, you don't need to specify uh, the, the state of every single elementary particle in that person's brain. Uh, that, that would just be a complete informational overload. So agential states can be realized by a variety of distinct underlying physical states. And this is just going to be 1% more technical, but um, I'll uh, introduce it um, nonetheless. My claim is that even if the world is deterministic at an underlying physical level, as an emergent phenomenon, there could still be indeterminism at the agential level of description. And um, what I've plotted here is just a very simple toy model of... Um, the world, or a world in a simple model, um, which goes through five different time periods from time one up to time five, and each little dot corresponds to one particular state this world could be in, and a line connecting the dots corresponds to one particular sequence of events that could take place. Um, so in this model here, we have um, uh, different possible sequences of events. You could think of them as physical sequences of events, and each sequence of events is exactly like my tram line, which uh, has no branching. It's deterministic. Once we specify this physical state, uh, we are just put on one single trajectory thereafter. But now if we re-describe this whole picture through a somewhat less fine-grained lens, um, by recognizing perhaps that from an agential or psychological perspective, these three states might be indistinguishable, and these three states might be indistinguishable indistinguishable. So all the states that fall into the same box in this grid might be indistinguishable from a psychological perspective. And then we look at the picture that results um, after giving up the distinction between states that are psychologically indistinguishable and suddenly it appears that um, there is actually some branching in the resulting histories or sequences of events viewed through this psychological lens. Okay, that was a little bit uh, compact, and I'm happy to answer more questions about this, but the bottom line of 
this argument is that physical level determinism is compatible with agential level indeterminism, indeterminism at the level of agents or psychology, which can be an emergent phenomenon. And the fact that it is an emergent phenomenon doesn't in any way undermine the claim that it is real. Okay, so let me just very quickly say a few words about the challenge from reductionism, but I won't go into as much detail as I did on, in the other one. Um, I'll just um, mention it for the sake of completeness. So the challenge from reductionism is a somewhat different challenge, which begins with the premise that all events and processes in the world are ultimately determined by or subsumed under uh, certain underlying physical events and processes. So you know, whatever my mental states are might be a byproduct of the underlying physical activity in my body and brain, um, uh, and uh, at the end of the day are still a consequence of the laws of nature or laws of physics underlying those, uh, uh, those, those physical states. And from this premise that somehow everything in the world is uh, allegedly a byproduct of and subsumed under um, physical processes, the challenge then derives the conclusion that all events and processes in the world are ultimately explicable in terms of underlying physical events and processes. So from the claim that um, you know, what my um, uh, psychological states and decisions and so on are, um, that w what these are is a consequence of some underlying physical mechanism, it is concluded that we can therefore also explain all these psychological processes and events based on um, the, the underlying physical mechanisms. And I think it's um, fair to say, um, if we take into account... Um, uh, findings in philosophy, philosophy of science, that um, from the fact that um, some, let's say, psychological processes are a consequence of underlying physical processes, it simply doesn't follow that those psychological processes can also be explained in terms of the underlying physical processes. So the sheer complexity of how physical events in the body and brain come together to generate psychological processes, the sheer complexity of that relationship may make it difficult to give an explanation of the psychological processes in um, physical terms. And I'll just give you one illustration of this. Um, consider how you would explain why someone goes to the fourth floor cafe in the LSE to buy some coffee. You could either try and in reality fail to understand the microphysical processes in this person's brain, which begin with some sensory stimuli, trigger some complicated neural responses, activate the person's muscles to put him, on, uh, put him or her on a trajectory towards the cafe, a very complicated physical sequence of events. And that would be the, the, the physical attempt to explain this. Alternatively, you could ascribe to the person the belief that there is coffee available in the cafe, the desire to drink coffee, so that it makes sense to take the action in question. The, the first is an explanation at the underlying physical level. The second is an explanation at the psychological or agential level. Now, which of these two explanations do you think is more illuminating or useful as, as an explanation to make sense of the behavior of this person? So who thinks... The physical explanation is more illuminating. Okay, so there are some. And who thinks the 
the psychological explanation is more illuminating. Okay, so there are a, a, a lot more people. And so I, I think many of us have the intuition that good explanations must identify the most functionally relevant regularities while leaving out extraneous details. And the physical explanation, of course, is full of these extraneous details. It's a kind of information and complexity overload for something that can be explained in very simple terms at a psychological level. And this indeed leaves the need for agential level or psychological level explanations that do refer to such notions as agency, intentionality, free choice, rationality, and so on, um, going against the reducibility of this psychological perspective to physical explanations. Okay, so let me quickly conclude because I'm um, out of time. So at first sight, you might think what I've argued looks a little bit counterintuitive. How could free will possibly be defended against the challenge from determinism on the one hand and also the challenge um, from reductionism on the other hand? But on closer inspection, I claim that the view I've, I've sketched here, I've been extremely sketchy, admittedly, has common sense on its side. Imagine an article in next week's issue of Nature or Science, you know, the two big scientific journals that I mentioned, which reports a super big breakthrough in physics, including the finding that the universe is deterministic. And imagine this is not just a fluke, but um, the, the Nobel Prize Committee is going out and investigating this and is likely to give a Nobel Prize to... Uh, the scientists who've made this discovery and the whole scientific world uh, comes to agree with this and you know, maybe you are a scientist yourself, you study this and you find the evidence absolutely compelling so we have a strong case on the table for the claim that the world is deterministic. Imagine this scenario. It's not impossible. Science is in flux. Physics is in flux. There have been lots of great discoveries recently. You may have read about the Higgs boson being discovered or quasi-discovered in the big CERN particle um, accelerator um, earlier on uh, this year. So, you know, lots of discoveries could happen and something like this is not inconceivable, even during our lifetimes. We don't know whether it will happen, but it could happen. Now, how should we react to such news? The announcement that physics tells us that the world is deterministic. Should we conclude that it challenges our understanding of the human condition as profoundly as the discovery of evolutionary theory seemed to do at the time in, in the 19th century? So should this put this as into some kind of existential shock or existential panic? Everything that we thought about how we as humans work suddenly turns out to be false. Should we stop deliberating about what to do and holding one another accountable for our actions? Should we perhaps release all murderers from prison on the account that um, it was not, not up to them to make these actions. What they did was, was already predetermined at the time of the Big Bang. They, 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 they couldn't help it. So the whole notion of criminal responsibility breaks down. Alternatively, should we just go on with our everyday business, thinking that this new discovery is just, so to speak, an interesting scientific development within physics? I think that giving up our conventional understanding of free will and revising the whole fabric of how human society works would be an overreaction. And what I've argued is that a relatively mild shift in perspective, namely the shift from a physical to an agential perspective in the analysis of free will, is actually enough to rehabilitate most of the things that we conventionally think and say about free will, even against the background 
of a physical scientific worldview. And so what I suggest is that the best way to defend the compatibility of free will and determinism and our physical worldview more broadly is to recognize that free will is not a physical phenomenon, but it is a higher level emergent phenomenon which is on a par with other higher level emergent phenomena like beliefs, desires, intentions, mental states, and so on. And I already emphasized the fact that beliefs, desires, intentions, mental states are emergent phenomena, not at the level of physics, but a psychological level that result from perhaps the complexity of uh, physical processes. That emergence of those phenomena doesn't challenge the claim that those are real phenomena. We take them seriously and we consider them perfectly real phenomena. And I think free will is just one of them. So in conclusion, if we are searching for free will at the level of fundamental physics, we're simply searching in the wrong place. Thank you. fascinating talk. I'm sure there will be lots of questions uh, from you, so we have about half an hour. So, fire away. Yeah. Uh, so my question was about the coffee example which you gave. So as I understand it, you say, okay, when I go to order between a macchiato and a latte, it isn't defined by the calculations from the big bang until now what I will take, because my, me as myself is, is something which is not related to those calculations. But where, where, it, where it bothers me a bit is that I can understand that, but once you take the coffee and the coffee gets consumed, the coffee which is not a person is, as a physical substance, related to those calculations. So the atoms of that which make up that coffee will be related to those calculations. So at the point where the physical and the non-physical interact, isn't, isn't that where it is? Well, my, my claim is not that somehow my decision to choose the coffee, to choose the macchiato rather than the cappuccino or whatever, that this decision somehow falls outside the laws of physics or outside the laws of nature. Um, so most of us think that everything that, that happens in the physical world, including us, is somehow uh, constrained by the, by the laws of nature. Um, my, my claim is just that in order to establish determinism, we have to look at the world uh, through a physical lens, and we'd have to look at the very fine-grained, full specification of the state of the world. On the other hand, when we look at the world through a psychological lens, that extremely detailed, fine-grained physical picture is, is not the one that we adopt and is not available to us. We look at the world through a more coarse-grained filter, if, if you like. But that's the appropriate way to look at the world when we think about psychological questions. And when viewed through this lens, we no longer, at that level, have determinism, but we can have, as my little toy model suggests um, indeterminism in the sense that the psychological state uh, that, that you are in at this less fine grade level of description leaves it open in which future direction you go and so you genuinely have the possibility to go one way or the other. Yeah, but so if the macchiato was determined to be consumed 
and the latter was determined not to be consumed, mm -hmm. how can you still have that, that, that liberty? So, there is a, so perhaps there is something slightly paradoxical about um, this view. And the, the slightly paradoxical thing, though, I, I, I think this is something that can be defended, is that it may very well be true that conditional on the full physical description of the world, one sequence of events was indeed predetermined. Namely, let's say, the sequence in which I drink the macchiato. But when we an analyze what agents do or what, what agents can do, we don't conditionalize on this full physical description of the world. That would somehow be a category mistake. And when we conditionalize on this more coarse-grained uh, psychological description of the situation, then um, the course of events is no longer um, determined. And at first sight, that may sound a little bit paradoxical. I, I admit that. Um, but that's the key philosophical move that I think one has to uh, come to terms with in order to defend uh, free will against the challenge from determinism. Perhaps it will become a bit more clear to you when we consider a few more questions. So, um, yeah. yeah, you're in the green. Oh, have we got microphones or not? No, we don't have microphones. So I stand up. Is it easier for people to stand up? Sure, sure. Well, I've got two things if I can remember them. The second one, as it were, is that it seems that your assumption that um, it must be psychological, um, all this stuff that's happening in our brains and all, all of that, is simply a way of saying we don't understand it yet, which is, in a sense, not a very good argument, because you know, in the time of Newton there were certain things we didn't understand, etc., so, to me, that's a weak argument, because it's not saying that it's not true. It's saying that we don't understand it yet, and it's also saying, it's not saying it's not true, it's not saying it's true, it's saying it's more illuminating, more beneficial. Now, that's fine, but that's different. it's different to say something beneficial from to say that it's true. And, and the first point yeah. goes back from that. Your, I suppose it's the same, really. Your assumption is that the psychological, um, you call it gentle, you really mean human. Um, human minds, we're talking about, the way the mind works. You're assuming that, again, ultimately, we won't know and understand the mind physically, that it will have some, it will be irreducible to physical explanation, it will yeah. be mental in some way. But again, you can't do it now, that's not to say we won't be able to do it in the future. So. To me, that seems a little bit of a weakness. I wonder what you think about this too. Okay, I'm, I'm um, aware of this, this challenge, and <coughs> indeed um, this challenge uh, pertains um, even more to the argument uh, from reductionism than to the argument from determinism, though it's also relevant to this agential psychological move that I make in response to the argument from, from determinism. Um, so... Um, Reductionism, as I defined it, uh, was the thesis uh, that you know, not only are psychological events and processes somehow a byproduct or consequence of underlying physical processes, but they are also ultimately explicable in terms of underlying physical processes. And I guess you um, accept a version of this thesis. I think you um, made the point, which I may even have had somewhere in the slides and glossed over, that from this reductionistic perspective, any 
higher-level non-physical explanation that we give is at best a preliminary explanation reflecting our ignorance of how to reduce the more complex uh, macroscopic phenomenon to the um, you know, more fine-grained uh, microscopic phenomenon. Okay, so that's, that's the challenge. Um, now, I would say two things, well, I'd say multiple things in response to this. Um, my main response would be to say uh, that when we make attributions uh, of um, causality, for instance, so what, is, what qualifies as the correct uh, cause of a particular outcome, for instance, was the cause of your action to come here um, a mental state at the psychological level of description, or was the cause of your coming here some very complex configuration of, of physical events? When we make these causal attributions, my, my claim is that um, we should always focus on the um, properties that stand in the functionally most systematic relationship with the outcome in question. And so the point that I would basically have to argue against your objection is that picking out the mental state description as the cause of your coming here, as opposed to this very, very detailed, fine-grained physical process, is the more functionally salient um, property to pick out as the cause, um, and that the physical description would be a complete combinatorial and informational overload uh, to, to give us as, as the cause. Um, and that's a view that, for instance, the so-called functionalists in the, in the philosophy of mind hold. They, they, they take the view that when we analyze uh, mental or psychological phenomena, ultimately we're not interested in um, the, the details of the um, particles doing various things in the brain, but we are interested in what functional mechanisms are encoded by this. Exactly the same when we think about how a computer functions. We are not interested so much in how the electrons flow in the particular microprocessor, but we are rather interested in the, uh, in the functional configuration of the software. And my claim is that once you take that sort of functionalist perspective, um, then we can give a relatively good case for not wanting to reduce all explanations to the underlying physical level. But I admit that, that this is actually one of the toughest challenges that, that can be raised for this project here, and there is a lot of onus of argument and, and defense on, on me and proponents of this view to, to, to make this case. Um, let's take... There's so many hands. Please forgive me if I can't remember all the hands. Um, let's take the question there. Thanks for the distinction. How does the idea of an evil or, for that matter, a benign genius manipulating our beliefs that we have free will feed into sort of break down between uh, the, the physical and the agential opposition? Determinism. Yeah, so I guess uh, I've set all these philosophical worries coming from skepticism uh, aside for, for present purposes, and I mean, um, Descartes had this uh, uh, evil demon thought experiment, you know, what, what if, in fact, uh, 
the world is, is not really the way I, I think it is, but, but in fact I am, you know, in modern terms, I'm just a brain in a vat that is wired to some supercomputer where the so supercomputer stimulates my brain to uh, uh, give the impression uh, that, that I'm in this reality, but in fact it's just a computer simulation, I'm just this brain floating, floating in a vat. Um, uh, these are extremely interesting and, and challenging uh, f philosophical questions, and um, I think for, for my purposes, I can, I, I can set them aside um, because I, I think the challenges that determinism raises for free will arise even if we think that this problem of skepticism can be answered. So, you know, maybe the problem of skepticism also cannot be answered, and then we have a big philosophical crisis. But, but even if we can answer that problem, we still have the challenge that, that determinism and other physical um, understandings might uh, pose for free will, and, and for this reason, you know, we have to answer this additional challenge. So that, that's probably how I would respond to you. Yeah. Um, the question in the very back. Hi, thank you. I really enjoyed that. Um, I just wanted to come back to a couple of your assumptions which you presented as being really unconfrontational. Um, but I, I thought you were going to argue against them at the beginning of the talk, but you uh, proceeded to do something more ambitious. The first one is to do with rational deliberation, and the second is to do with responsibility. So the first one, you said that there's no need, we would have no need for rational deliberation if we can't control our actions. So the idea being that we, if, we, if we're not free, then we don't need to rationally deliberate. And the second one being, the one regarding responsibility, is that free will is necessary in order to ascribe responsibility to somebody or to something. Uh -huh. uh, I just wanted to sort of put a bit of pressure on both of those uh -huh. to, okay. to respond to them. So I could think of a, an example of where it's an agent rationally deliberates about an action, and they do so um, without, and we don't need to have a notion of free will there. And they may do so for a couple of different reasons. The first one might be that um, different actions are chosen when they're rationally deliberated upon. So when you choose the macchiato, after thinking about it for a couple of minutes, you might have decided that you wanted a latte. So deliberation is engaged with in order for us to make the right decision. You might actually realise that, hell, <coughs> I wanted a latte after all, and macchiato wasn't going to do it for me. So that's the, the first sort of case where you don't seem to need free will for rational deliberation. Can, can I just yeah. make just a very quick comment? I mean, of course... This itself is, is an interesting debate, and what is the relationship between free will and deliberation? But what I would say is that I think, globally speaking, if we absolutely had no free will, then it would be very difficult to um, make sense of this elaborate activity of deliberation that we engage in all the time. I mean, my strong instinct is that um, the way, the, the, the reason deliberation matters to us so much is precisely that deliberation has this action-guiding role for us and that we deliberate about what to do. And if um, actions are not within our control and we can never make choices, then there is a fairly intuitive sense of which deliberation seems a little bit um, pointless or redundant. I'm not claiming that locally in every single case of deliberation there needs to be a, a neat connection with a corresponding free choice. So are your intuitions the same with responsibility? Because it seems like 
the way he presented it is this non-controversial assumption to do with that we need free will in order to ascribe responsibility. But there are cases when we ascribe responsibility to things or persons who haven't acted freely. So, for example, we might ascribe responsibility to a wild beast that's eaten several children of the village, and we decide to put the wild beast down. And there's no notion of freedom which is necessary in order to, to make that ascription. Right, but here I think we would at most, if, if so you're talking about um, not uh, a human agent here, you're talking about, um, let, uh, let's say, um, an, a non-human animal um, that you know, broke out of the zoo and, and attacked a child or something like that. But we would attribute causal responsibility here. We would not attribute moral responsibility insofar as we wouldn't think that that animal is a, is a moral agent. Um, so it's still a causal system that does something in, in the world. Um, maybe an agent in some weaker sense, but, but not certainly not in the sense required for moral responsibility attributions. Okay, so it's, it, it would depend on a, a more nuanced account of responsibility. Exactly, yeah. 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 Okay, thanks. Okay, um, yeah, to the left. Yeah, yeah, the yes, uh, about Benjamin, um, uh, he's been given such a prominence about his experiments, but he's got two very serious problems with his uh, experiments. Firstly, he hasn't got a causal theory of consciousness. He hasn't got the faintest idea how consciousness arises. So when he said the readiness potential comes four or five hundred milliseconds before the conscious uh, decision, that means nothing. But the more serious problem is that if you want to abort your action, he doesn't answer the question, is there a readiness potential? Which means, was your abort caused by the same mechanism? Or is it just a free, freely aborted? So, um, I mean, in, in some sense, uh, you are, you're, you're, you're speaking in my support, so I'm, I, I, should, I should emphasize that I'm not endorsing the uh, Libet uh, findings and interpretation here. This was merely meant to be a classic example of the kind of neuroscientific experiment that many people have taken to challenge free will. Now... Um, I agree with you that we should not interpret uh, this experiment as uh, challenging um, free will, and um, you can give that response at a number of different levels. You can either engage very closely with the technical details of what was done experimentally. You can also engage more broadly with the background psychological theories that were used to motivate the interpretation, and you can engage with um, the, the more philosophical picture about um, what the nature of uh, you know, neuroscientific findings about brain processes ultimately tells us about these more psychological phenomena like, like free will. So I think, uh, ultimately, you, you are, you're, you're speaking in support of, of the view that I'm defending. So thank you. Impressed with them, well, a picture, all of it. I guess I just want to ask, in the sense that your capitalism is, you know, an unqualified, global, sacred um, agency, it's not, as you put in the paper, you know, it's not the conditional analysis that we've all been familiar with, it's not the dispositional analysis, this is a, an unqualified modal culture. You're not trying to, you know, um, as you put it, you know, you're not trying to get, get a notion that comes too cheap. So, in that sense, that your compatibilism is an unqualified modal culture. How does this differ from Anthony Kenny's work in the sort of first part of the 20th century? I was just wondering how 
Okay, so I'll I'll uh, I'll I'll try to answer in such a way that that uh, that that the uh, question becomes evident. So so the, the question is a is a is a bit of a uh, you know scholarly philosophical question, but that's fine, of course, about how the picture that I'm defending here is related to a picture of free will that uh, was developed and defended in the 1970s by the Oxford philosopher Anthony Kenny. And in fact, in the written paper, which you can um, look at on the web, it's, by the way, it's called Free Will Determinism and the Possibility of Doing Otherwise, and it's on my webpage. Um, in, in this written paper, I, I have a short discussion of the relationship with uh, this view developed by Anthony Kenny. So Anthony Kenny agrees with um, uh, drawing a distinction between... Um, the physical and the psychological level. Um, and he also uh, agrees, I think, that free will um, uh, is a phenomenon that we should identify at the psychological level, not at the physical level. Um, but I don't think he develops a, a sort of modern philosophy of mind type of account of how these two levels are related to each other, uh, and uh, in particular how, um, for instance, physical level determinism could... Um, nonetheless support agential-level indeterminism as an emergent um, byproduct. Um, so I guess that, that's a sort of very short answer. But uh, as with all of these things, you know, more details uh, could be given. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> free will. <laughs> free will, okay. <laughs> Let's take the question there. Yeah. And through the idea of physical level and determinism, would that most... That not seem that all natural phenomena is already determined. So, for example, would we be able to one day um, predict accurately when, for example, an earthquake would take place? Okay. So, um, it, so the question. I'll repeat the question. The, so the question is: Doesn't physical level determinism imply that the whole course of events in the world should ultimately be predictable? So, for instance, if physical level determinism were true, should we then not be able to? predict exactly when an earthquake will, will happen, and, and so on and so on. Okay, so <clears throat> yes and no. So here's the, here's the problem. Um, there, there's a classic thought experiment, um, uh, uh, the, um, which, which is due to uh, Laplace, the Laplacian demon thought experiment. Laplace uh, 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 thought that now if the world is deterministic, if you could then imagine uh, a creature, a very intelligent creature, who had all the information about the world, the full state of the world, who had maximal computational power to uh, uh, calculate exactly uh, what that physical state of the world, together with the laws of physics, would, would result in, this creature would indeed be able to predict the course of events once, once and forever. But in reality... Um, we, we do not have such a creature, and, and such a creature is, is you know, not, not even anywhere remotely in reach. Um, and um, the world is also subject to um, you know, what people sometimes call chaos or infinite sense, or, or, well, extreme sensitivity to small changes in initial conditions. So as soon as um, you cannot absolutely fully measure all details or specify all details of the physical state in its entirety but maybe only approximate it, then even these very slight 
deviations in your measurements from the true state may already make it the case that uh, your predictions would come wildly apart from what is really going to happen. And, and so the bottom, this was a little bit quick, but the bottom line is that determinism uh, in, in principle does not imply pre predictability in, in practice. Just yeah. interject something that's relevant, just very, very okay. briefly. But there also <laughs> determinism doesn't entail computability as well. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> just just Okay, thanks. Yeah, question in the back. Yeah. Um, you seem to be saying that because, of course, it's very difficult to figure out uh, subatomically how people's brains are going to produce a certain sort of behavior, that that licenses us to then talk about free will. But it's a kind of a, surely that opens up all kinds of other sorts of things about whether people are going to get coffees because they're, they're subject to the yearning for coffee or some kind of imagined kind of hypothesized uh, cause like that, or you're also open to the trouble that um, of uh, the problem of anthropomorphism, where I, I might be puzzled about how cockroaches behave, and I'm not really going to be working with their nervous system, so I impute to them all kinds of, mm -hmm. of uh, desires and intentions, and always thinking about each sheep now, and he really likes this, mm -hmm. and all which are uh, just my choice because it's handy to think that way, yeah. that I can deal with that, okay. I can make guesses about what he's going to do next. Yeah. Okay, well, I think you're picking up on this uh, tendency that, that we humans certainly have, namely to ascribe intentionality to all sorts of systems and, and phenomena. Um, I mean, we routinely ascribe intentionality to, to one another, and we, we think for good reasons, I, I guess, although some reductive physicalists would challenge that, that claim. Uh, but um, people also often tend to ascribe intentionality to various other things. And, I mean, you gave the example, but maybe we, we ascribe intentionality to cockroaches and we perhaps uh, ascribe intentionality to volcanoes or to the weather or, or whatever. Certainly, some of our ancestors, uh, no, no doubt, ascribed intentionality to lots and lots and lots of, of, of natural phenomena, maybe just because it's a, it's a natural psychological inclination for us to do this. Okay, so the response to this is to try to figure out exactly for which phenomena taking this intentional stance, again, then it's terminology, this intentional stance is warranted and appropriate, and for which phenomena it is not um, warranted and appropriate. And, and that in itself is a, is a complicated question. I mean, the example that is sometimes given is, is a thermostat. You could think of a thermostat as a very simple intentional agent. The thermostat has beliefs about what the temperature is, because it has a measurement device, the thermostat has a desire to achieve a particular target temperature, and the thermostat then acts rationally by switching on and off the heating or aircon so as to bring the actual state of the world in, light, in line with, with its desires based on its beliefs. So that looks totally like a rational agent. But of course, the comeback to this is that we have a much simpler, more parsimonious um, alternative purely physical or mechanical explanation of the thermostat's workings available, um, which makes taking the intentional stance strictly gratuitous or redundant in that case. In the case of that, though, I mean, I've already the cockroach is a bit of a joke example, but if I move to chimpanzee, okay. it's, less, it's less easy to slip away from it because you then got to not impute them. We are mere chimpanzees ourselves, after all. Sure. We're, we're sliding into trouble. Where are you going to draw the line? It becomes some kind of... 
And from the same thing about free will is Well, I admit that the line drawing is indeed a challenging issue. However, I would actually have no problem with ascribing intentionality, at least, to, to chimpanzees um, as well. Now, um, it's, it's clear that um, there is um, a whole spectrum of different um, mammals, you know, up to the primates, up to the humans, uh, with different cognitive uh, capacities, and it's clear that the content of the intentionality that uh, we humans are capable of is uh, you know, unprecedented in, in, the, in the living world. And um, although chimpanzees uh, have amazing cognitive abilities, uh, they are not quite at that same level of complexity. For instance, the capacity of uh, recursive language uh, seem, seems to be, or at least arguably, uh, a uniquely uh, human capacity. So I think ascribing intentionality as such uh, uh, is still comp fully consistent with drawing distinctions between the complexity of the intentionality. And so there's probably no difficulty with saying that there's a thin sense in which a chimpanzee also may have free will, but obviously not in the same rich sense that we would require for ordinary moral responsibility inscriptions. But a lot more could be said about this. Okay, so I'm sure um, we would like to continue on, but unfortunately our options, are, this is not under our control, we're out of time now. So thank you for your excellent questions and thanks to Christian for thank you.